we are out here standing up for women's rights because we believe that women's rights are human rights. We stand up for equity and equality in communities of color. We stand up for immigrants, union workers, and we stand for matters concerning environmental justice. We stand against the violence and exploitation of any and every vulnerable and marginalized population. We stand for justice. And when we stand up, we show up and we speak up. Hey, it's me, it's Reverend Leslie, the Minister of Social Justice at Community of Hope AME Church. And we are here to welcome you to another edition of the Hope Activism Institute. You know what it is. I bring you greetings on behalf of our pastor, Reverend Tony Lee, the senior pastor of Community of Hope AME Church. And I'm super excited. Can you tell? I am so excited to continue this dialogue about faith and justice with Bishop Frank Madison Reed III and Episcopal Supervisor Marla Reed. If you tuned in last week, then you understand and just what you're in store for. But don't go anywhere because we're getting ready to start right now. I need to hear about this because we're talking about the radio and the television space. One of the things that I heard was that you were a consultant bishop for the A for, for Amen for the iconic Amen yes. TV series. In fact, if you look uh if you the look credits. at the credits uh, at the end, Dr. Thomas Kilgore who was the pastor, the iconic pastor uh, of Second uh, Baptist Church in Los Angeles, and I were the consultants. And if you had ever been to my office at Ward, the office of the pastor really was outlined after the office we had at Ward. Wow. And, uh, 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 on the set, the set was modeled after Ward's the, the set, office. Exactly. We got there by a Black uh, producer who became a member afterwards, who became a member of um, uh, a Ward AME Church. And so God just kept opening doors. And one of the most memorable of all of the amens was when the pastor had to deal with a guy in prison who was a hardened prisoner. And that was one I really, really worked on the script with them hard. Most of the scripts were wonderful, but they wanted this, that one to be extremely real. And I think going back to this whole conversation, if there's one thing that could sum my wife's ministry up and she didn't get to go into it cause she's very humble. She was the third vice president of the Hollywood uh, Beverly Hills chapter, the NAACP, and her primary responsibility was under President, the late President Willis Edwards, mm -hmm. was to work the, uh, what is that award called? It was the awards. No, the, the, um, the black, the NAACP. The image awards. The image, the image awards. awards. Okay. So yes. All of this came together for the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And she started uh, the Winnie Mandela women's ministry because the free south africa movement in los angeles was housed in ward ame church and so all of these cultural political spiritual things converged and finally on that what really kicked off the growth uh, at, at some point we're going to talk about allies and partnerships but we invited in 1980, I believe it was one or two, it's still on YouTube, Minister Farcon to preach mm -hmm. at our 11 o'clock service. 
and that caused great Ooh, consternation Jesus. in the community <laughs> because what Christian had a, uh, a Muslim, a nation of Islam, Muslim or Muslim, come and preach on at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. But the church was packed from top to bottom. And 50 some people joined the church that Sunday. Wow. And most of them were young high school or early college activists when they were in school. Many of them belonged to the Republic of uh, the RNA, uh, the Republic of New Africa, I believe. And they are now in Atlanta teaching at Georgia State. But these former Black Panthers and these former Black nationalists had to come to see what kind of church yes. would, would be strong enough to invite Minister Louis Farrakhan. And the very members that did not want him to come, when he finished talking about the Blackness of Jesus and how he had hair like lamb's wool and skin like burning brass. The title of the message, if you ever want to see it, and Khalid Muhammad, the late Khalid Muhammad and I became friends and stayed friends until he left. And so those are the kinds of things that media, culture, and the AME sense of salvation is not just the individual. Salvation is the people. It's the community. It's the nation, it's the county. That's what makes the difference. That was good, Bishop. So look, we're gonna stay in this conversation about unorthodox spaces because we talked about it um, in the context of media and how even in that vein of being in an unorthodox space following adult programming, it all worked together to God's mm -hmm. honor and to God's glory. But you started to talk about unorthodox partnerships mm -hmm. and allyships and so i want to talk to i want to talk about that a little bit because you were one of the organizers of the million man march right with with minister lewis farrakhan but you also have formed a partnership when you were pastoring with the schools with the local schools right you I, from what i understand you sent some of your church folks out because there was a school that was having some issues with violence mm -hmm. um and you sent your congregation out to kind of serve as security Talk to us about forming unorthodox partnership. How do you do it? How, how did you even end up in that space? And how do we do that today? One of the things is what it's rooted and grounded in what my father taught me, what Marla's mother and father taught her. And that is all readers may not be leaders, but all leaders must be readers. And when you read deeply and read broadly, you understand that it takes a team to achieve the dream of the kingdom of God, of freedom, of justice, and equality. And so one of the books that turned my life around my, my stepbrother, Kurt Schmoke, who was the mayor of Baltimore, when he was at Yale and I was in high school, he gave me a copy of uh, Malcolm X's autobiography. And that turned my life around. 
because when I was uh, when I was a child, my mother would always take us up to Chicago, and one of her friends would play for me Malcolm X records. All right, and told my mother once she and my father divorced, put that boy into karate. So I, I've been doing karate for now 55 years. Bishop, you still do karate? Oh, yes, ma'am. Oh, wow. What, so, what, what belt are you? Oh, I've got two, two black belts and a, a black sash. But uh, if you don't practice, all of that don't make no difference. At the end of the day, all of those things taught me how to love people and to meet people where they are and to recognize, hey, over here, the Muslims are building strong black men. And at the time, there were not a lot of men in church, in black churches. And so what turned us around for the school and the violence was that we had a Monday night is men's night. And we saw 500 men every Monday night. And what were we teaching? We were teaching the autobiography of Malcolm X. We were teaching uh, the uh, Frederick Douglass's slave narrative, and we were teaching them how these were related to the Bible. And we taught Malcolm was not anti-Christianity. Malcolm was anti-whiteity, or what today we would call white supremacy Christianity. And so that plus my wife uh, uh, it was really big on forming. She speaks French fluently. She's really big, was, has always been big on the Pan-African tie. So those things made us look for uh, 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 unique partnerships that would grow the kingdom of God and help our people work together. Absolutely. This is an amazing story. And so I want to also, I guess, dig a little deeper and talk about how has your time, and this question is for both of you, um, how has your time as pastor changed since you guys have started to serve in the Episcopal seat? Say that one more time. How, so, so, so this for you would be first lady, but how, how is your time when you guys were kind of dealing on the local level as pastor and first lady and you're, you're you know, just kind of being in the trenches of this work? How has it changed since now you've become the bishop and the Episcopal supervisor and still having, you know, to kind of do this work? What were the, some of the changes that you've seen from the local level to now on the Episcopal level? Um, I think that's a very thoughtful question. Um, I think one of the greatest changes um, or challenges that I've seen and experienced um, is to gather and to harness the experience and the encounters of your history and to re-navigate them so that they're relevant and that they are impactful for the future. Uh, I, I think both of us are relational and it's so very important never to forget where you've come from and the people who helped you to become and who consistently help you to evolve mm -hmm. into becoming the person that God has called, calls us all to be on a daily basis. Uh, learning how to translate where we are today 
and to be present and to be relevant and to be impactful. Um, so I think that that is the biggest, uh, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges that I've faced. Um, we're no longer grounded with the congregation. And I think when you're talking to other people who don't know our, our Reformation, African Methodism, that bishops do not pastor <laughs> churches. They're kind of like, oh, what church are you at now? And so you kind of have to go through the whole explanation. We're no longer at a church because uh, in, the, uh, in, in our Reformation, bishops oversee their pastors to pastors, and we oversee a number of other components, missionaries, lay, uh, the men, brotherhood, YPD, RAYAC. And so being able to, uh, I think, really apply yourself meaningly and focus on the work and translate what's going on around you, what's currently happening, and how to really make the work impactful that you're doing, your assignment, applying it, and not allowing the, the administration and the basic operation to eclipse the ministry and the work, to get to the gut and the grits of the work on a daily basis. That's good. Like my wife, I think your question is right on point. Uh, I would build on her extraordinary answer by saying, the key for me in making it easier than I thought it would be is that the AME Church sees itself as a connection. And when you study the rich history of our church and understand that uh, for women, for example, it is not just uh, uh, the first uh, female preacher but there was an Amanda Berry Smith, who was a preacher, evangelist, and social action person. Uh, there was an Ida uh, uh, Barnett, Ida Wells Barnett. Ida, is it Ida B? Ida, Ida B. Wells. Ida, Ida Wells Barnett, who was a strong AME. And so whether they were lay people or preachers, we see ourselves as connected. The individualism and deconstruction of the 21st century has wreaked havoc with our connection. And so now uh, in many places we have an AME church of the lay people and an AME church of the clergy and an AME church of the women and an AME church of the presiding elders, bishops, etc. But when a bishop and supervisor see their, see their work as a connection, we become pastors of pastors. We become pastors to the lay organization. We become pastors and servants to the communities, to the politicians, to the rural churches, to the farmers or whoever is in our district. And because my wife and I see it that way, it causes some problems with passive AMEs who feel entitled just to get an appointment and go back to their church and do nothing when we are there to empower them. And so our up, at one of our upcoming uh, conferences, our theme is heal, right? Because our church 
in the midst of COVID, in the midst of the reconstruction of white supremacy, in the midst of the economic challenges that will face churches in our communities. And 25 to 30% of all churches in America will be closed within the next five years because many of their members will watch, will not come back to the building, will watch from, uh, 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 continue to watch virtually. Some will not come back and some will go other places. And so at the end of the day, our job is to help people heal, to equip, encourage, equip, and empower them to be helpers, to empower others. To, the anointing ain't just for you to shout, to help anoint others because the anointing breaks the yoke. And because black love is black liberation, the L stands for love. And we're going to focus on emotionally healthy churches and emotionally healthy spirituality. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you do that, th this job as bishop and supervisor is ac as exciting as being a pastor. In fact, more so. <laughs> wow. Bishop, you're preaching up in here. So Episcopal Supervisor Reed, I want to, you talked about pivoting and being able to be relevant. And mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about a campaign that you led called She Votes. Mm -hmm. We all know that in this last election, it was a historic election. Mm -hmm. I am so proud, like so many others, that we have a Madam Vice President, Kamala Absolutely. Harris, that's in the house, right? Um, we know that, you know, it wasn't just the Black vote, but it was the power of the Black woman's vote. So I want to talk to you about this campaign that you led called um, She She Votes. Just talk to us about what went into the campaign. How did you organize it? Um, you tell us more. Uh, thank you for asking um, about it. I think it was um, it was definitely um, God inspired because we are trained and our frame of reference and our formation requires us to be, uh, to apply ourselves practically, uh, which means we have to be political. To be black in America, you gotta be political. Where you shop, sleep, eat, everything is political. And so recognizing that uh, the power of our vote was, was at stake and is still at stake. We're not at a place where we can become complacent or uh, comfortable with what's going on. And so we said four years ago, this has been building up the missionary society, the Women's Missionary Society partnered with Michelle Obama's uh, movement when we all vote. And we also have in the, under the Social Action Commission, which Bishop Reed is chair of the commission, the Social Action Commission, we had an AME uh, V tool alert, alert, which was a tool, an internet tool to empower, equip, and enlighten all of our, uh, all of our membership to vote, to get out the vote. So we had been talking about it for years, but as we, as we progressed into the last, the last year between 2018, 2020, um, I recognized that the, impo the importance and the significance of every person claiming the power of their vote because our vote was our voice 
and in and translating that message as a modern day missionary that you know i think some people have uh, a picture of an eye or an idea of what a missionary would do or used to do but right now we're on the battlefield of building a better america building back a better america and so that meant that we had to use everything we could our voices our influence our sphere of influence um, our families our communities our churches and so one of the things that i've noticed as well is that sometimes people tend to overlook and challenge the power of women um, it's been a struggle in the African-American community. And this election, we have really, the, the power of women and our ability to shape and uh, form and impact politics has really been elevated. And so one day I was just praying over, okay, what, how can we empower the missionaries in our district, the 30 Episcopal District, to really wrap their, to really engage in voting? And uh, I think I was washing dishes or something. The Lord said she votes because it's such the we're, we, are, we are in and we were in the midst of spiritual warfare. And the vote is what it's all about because it's our voice. And so he dropped, the Lord dropped, the spirit of the Lord dropped into my spirit, voting victory over the enemy's strategies. Yeah. Because everything that they had started to do was to remove mailboxes, to disengage uh, African-American voters, uh, all, of the, um, all, all of the strategies and tactics that were undermining the power of our vote. And so I really thought it was important to say to women, listen, if, if a woman is well cared for, a community is well cared for. The whole world is cared for because we bring we bring everything with us. And that's not to male bash, that's not to diminish the, the importance or the significance of what the black male vote is, but we bring a different passion. We receive it and we express our excitement, our passion and our engagement very differently. And so when you really talk to a woman, you have, to, I'm talking to you because you're a woman. You, 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 you manage your children, you manage your family, you manage your household, you run the neighborhood associations, your teachers, your pastors, your leaders, your therapists, your grocery store workers, your taxi drivers, run your mouth, open your mouth and tell everybody you know to go vote. Now, what I wanted to do was tell them how to vote. That's what I wanted to really tell, but I recognize on that platform, I could not do that. And so as an Episcopal supervisor, we all had a mandate from the connectional WMS to empower our districts to partner with various organizations to get out the vote. So through the Missionary Society, I think the Missionary Society, and this isn't the entire third district, we registered like over 10,000 votes, but we had been working for a period of time. And so I recognize how very important it is to speak to women, to uh, empower them, to step up, to open, open their mouth and speak what their real, what our reality is because it means something and it's significant. And so not just for the election of 2020, but going forward, everybody, we have to vote in every election, not just, uh, not just the national election, but your local elections. And so, you know, when we keep our mouths closed, when we're not, act when we're not active, that's when we're letting, 
we're, we're releasing our power to other people. And so she votes was, it stands for victory over the enemy strategy. So we're standing on that platform that we really do have the victory as women to influence political power, our families, our homes, our churches, and our communities. Absolutely. One of the things that I found that was so critical in this election cycle wasn't just about voter registration. You know, so I grew up in a time where, you know, that was just always the thing. That was the beginning and ending of the election is making sure that folks were registered to vote. But this election, there was so much more on the line. There was the misinformation and the disinformation that was targeting our communities, right? There were, you know, the the barriers just in that people were trying to put up just so that people would not have the opportunity Absolutely. to vote. I, I can tell you here in Maryland, they changed the rules. <laughs> they changed the rules in the middle of the game, right? And so there was a lot of you know, education that had to happen in addition to making sure that people were registered to vote. There was a lot of work that, you know, was being done around the reentry population. And I bring all of these things up because I think what you said had so much power in terms of the power that women carry to be able to connect to the entire community and how that work in this season has to continue. It has to move forward um, because you know those in, those those strategies, though the the, the enemies' uh, tactics are not going anywhere in the local election. Right? Absolutely. And what and what you said is that he he subtly changes and insinuates other things, and so it's I, I think Who it's a, the enemy, okay. the enemy, the enemy of our progress of 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 people of humanity as well as black people um, that you, we have to be mindful of the insinuations that our vote does not matter and our voice does not matter. And our vote in this day and time is the ballot and our ballot is a bullet. And I recognize that if we wanted to bring the enemy of our future, of our progress down, then we had to use our ballot, which was a bullet. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good. Bishop, I want to bring you into this conversation because yeah. you are a founding member of the Black Church Pact. Mm -hmm. And the Black Church Pact did a lot to help, you know, around this election cycle, around galvanizing our community to vote. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the work with the Black Church Pact? First, let me say I met Michael McBride, who is the executive director, hope I have the title correct, of uh, 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 the Black of the group that you're talking about through your pastor. Okay. Uh, we had dinner here in Baltimore. And when I saw the vision, and so for me, while there is uh, she votes, for me, vote means vision that overcomes, transforms, and empowers. Mm -hmm. And so I saw all of those in what Mike and his team were trying to put together. And so again, that is a partnership because uh, as you know, Mike brings together multi uh, uh, black denominations like the Church of God in Christ, like the Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, like Bayamie mm -hmm. Church and Baptist Church and others. And so, it caused a transformation. And nationally, as supervisor said, when you go to Georgia, it was a woman who shook 
the voting system there. There's another system also from Georgia, Black Votes Matters. And what I wish the younger generation of women would not forget is that before there was a Stacey Abrams, before we uh, had uh, our sister Shirley Chisholm run for president in 1964, Fannie Lou Hamer, who was, who was a black sharecropper at one time, Fannie Lou Hamer was in 64, what Stacey Abrams is now. And what I don't want us to forget at the height of we did it, all right? Not just black people, but we did it. Progressive, good people, we did it. The black church did it, the black community did it. But what we can't forget is with all the great programs that Lyndon Baines Johnson and the Democratic Party brought in 64, in, Atlant in Atlantic City, there was a challenge to the white Mississippi party and they sent the integrated mm -hmm. party led by Charles Evers and Fannie Lou Hamer, they sent them back and denied them seats. And, and so we must organize, not just for an election of persons, we must elect and register to vote and vote to make sure that our people's agenda, not just the middle class, but the not just the leaders, but our people get health care. Biden says he's got our back. All right, Biden. Then where's health care? Where's reparations? Where is money for HBCUs, et cetera? And so we've got to have an agenda because as Malcolm X said, we have to teach our people the science of politics and the science of economics. And that's what the vote does. It opens the door. But if all you do is vote, the thief who came to steal, kill, and destroy will steal, kill, and destroy your voting rights. And as you said earlier, they're trying to steal them even now. Yeah, absolutely. This yeah. is such great work. And I'm, let me tell you, I'm so sad that we have come to the end of our time. I, I'm, I'm really well, hard. We appreciate, we appreciate it. We appreciate Thank you. you. Thank you. I appreciate you both. Um, but I want to end. I want to end on two notes before we go. Mm -hmm. So I want to know what you're reading. Mm -hmm. My pastor told me I had to ask you that. What, what are you reading? Okay. And I want you to cast a vision for where we should be going and what we should be doing in African Methodism for such a time as this. Okay. And that question is for both of you. You can start. Okay. Uh, what am I reading now? I'm rereading. What I've discovered is there is a book industry in the 21st century. And we become so involved in reading for information that we don't read for transformation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going back and reading in this season some older texts, Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois, which is one of, in this setting and in this season, since we've been through the Reagan white reconstruction and we've been through the Bush reconstruction 
And now we're in the midst of the Trump Republican Party or Trumpite Party uh, reconstruction, which is as much like what happened after Blacks, our people got the vote after the Civil War. This is the closest thing to it with the violence uh, against uh, Black people and people who disagree with the rise of white supremacy. So I'm reading Black Reconstruction. I'm reading now uh, a book. I suggest if anybody's interested, they get it on Kindle because the uh, only print copies are now $99. On Kindle, it's $14. The Political Philosophy of Malcolm X. And then I am reading, and this is a fairly new book uh, by my friend Earl Henderson, one of the best books on organizing and the history of the organi organizing of, of the Black power movement, which he takes from uh, Du Bois and Elaine Locke up to the present time. It's a book entitled, The Revolution Will Not Be Theorized. <laughs> and it's about how you have to have a theory for a theory for actual cultural revolution. Go ahead, baby. And now I will, after she answers one, I'll come back to two. Okay. So did you did you give what us you the read? second question? I know you said what we were reading. Yeah. So, and then, so the second question is just like, what do you have for us? Where do you see us going? What should we be doing for such a time as this? Okay. Yeah. So I am reading uh, Bishop T.D. Jake's latest book, When Women Pray. And uh, the other book that I am reading is You Are the Most Powerful Woman in the Room by Lydia uh, Tanay, I believe it is. Um, and I want—I just wanted to revisit with you. You asked me about She Votes. And I wanted to say to you, it wasn't just a vision, but we implemented and executed the strategy of victory over the enemy's uh, strategies. We have three conferences that consist of missionaries in each conference we had a, a convention where we empowered women to vote and we partnered with when we all vote the black church that pack and amev alert and we organized along conference lines and we had weekly texting and calling parties so it was more than just a thought uh, but we actually implemented a voting strategy in all of our conferences, the Pittsburgh, West Virginia, the Ohio, South Ohio, North Ohio, where we did weekly texting and calling to empower women to empower others to vote as well. Um, in terms of what I think we should be doing um, at this time, I think that it's very important for us to realize that to make the best of where we are, uh, it seems as if the pandemic has been the uh, the backdrop and the context, the major context and backdrop out of which everyone is operating. And it has been uh, devastating as well as destructive. But in the midst of this, I think it's, our, it's an opportunity for us to recognize that this is a season of reset. Mm -hmm. And we can come, we can emerge from this place better that than with what what we were when we went came into it, um, and not to be bemoan it, but to.
project on what life can be like for us as a people. I think specifically as leaders, it's our responsibility to pivot and to make sure that the people that look to us for leadership, uh, that we make sure that we propel them into the digital age and make sure that there's technological transformation, making sure that our children understand internet, 5G, uh, the, the phone, uh, making sure that they understand the tool, the modern tools of technology, which can help us to propel the gospel. And so it's not a place for us to get settled and to look behind us, but we have to make sure that we're pivoting and going and, and, and that we're the pioneers of the new frontier, which is a digital age. And uh, Jesus lives there too. Amen to that. <laughs> Bishop, where do we go from here? What do we do? What, what are we being called to do in such a time as this? My wife's answer was so profound. I had to look up um, and listen to the voice of God. I was reading in the Washington Post earlier today that murders nationwide have gone up 30% mm. since COVID. And so I think the first thing we must do as a nation, because people, Black people, are people of color because there are Latinx people who are people of color and, surf, surf, mm -hmm. and suffer from racism even though they speak uh, uh, Spanish. And so we have to have self-healing. We have to heal mm -hmm. and to heal ourselves, we must know who we are culturally mm -hmm. and who God made us to be because as important as technology is, as essential as technology is, if you don't know who you are, artificial intelligence, yeah. which is driven by technology, will make you a tool of technology instead of making human beings right, using technology as a tool so that it requires self-healing, to use the words of the uh, Honorable Elijah Muhammad that goes back to uh, uh, the ancient Egyptian knowledge, know thyself. Yes. Not the self that white supremacy tells you you are. Absolutely. Not the self that wounded some wounded black parents mm. and black teachers and black preachers and black leaders tell you who you tell you who you are but learn who you are listen for the voice of god learn to do what's if your parents did not dedicate you to god dedicate your own life to god and then once you dedicate your life to god put on the whole armor of God for or to be black and oppressed or white and oppressed. They use whiteness as their armor, not knowing 
that while the white rich patriarchal system gets richer, they are using them to keep people of color down while they don't raise the minimum wage, while they cut out the jobs that they work. And so we must finally turn to each other. Oh, if absolutely. as black Christians, if the AME church would start com stop competing with each other, my church is bigger than your church. My church had so-and-so come. If we would stop competing with each other and complementing each other, there can be differences. I'm not romantic. There can be, we can disagree without being destructively disagreeable. If we as black, as black Christians and black denominations and as the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which has always led the way in social action, if we did that, if we were secure enough to partner, all right? And I'll close with this. I told you about Farcon coming. How could I let Farcon come? Because I knew that after my brother gave one of his most powerful messages, I knew that after it was over, I was extending the invitation for people to come to Christ. Mm -hmm. I knew that they were sitting up in a Christian church. And he and I were not competing with each other. We were complementing each, each other. other. Yes. And when Black people complement each other, when oh, yeah. uh, 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 Granger and Pastor uh, 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 Browning, uh, when they, Joanne, Pastor Joanne, because they complimented Tony Lee and their ministerial staff, Many of them have gone on to do greater things. Yeah. And now members of, of, your, of your former staff have gone on to pastor churches in Baltimore, in the Washington Conference, in Virginia. And that's what happens when we complement each other. And so we've got to start complementing each other and not competing with each other. And when we walk, oh, bless his name, when we walk together, children, and don't get weary, yes. we'll make it to the promised land in this country in 2021 if we walk together. Amen and amen. What can you say after that? Absolutely nothing. We have received our charge, and I want to thank Bishop and Episcopal Supervisor Reed for all the knowledge, for all the wisdom that you all have dropped on us in this hour. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it, and we're going to show you that we appreciate it because we're going to be called into action and do just what you charged us to do in this section. Hey, didn't I tell you that that interview was going to be everything? I am so grateful for Bishop Frank Madison Reed III and Episcopal Supervisor Marla Reed. I'm grateful for their sharing of their lived experiences, but I'm more grateful for the wisdom that they imparted on us tonight. They paved the way for how we move forward in faith and justice. 
But guess what? You know what it is. We meet here at this time every Thursday at 7 o'clock p.m. And next week is no exception. You don't want to miss this because we have Nicole Tisdale, author of The Right to Petition, coming to talk to us next week. And she'll be telling us how we frame our ask when we go and we meet with our legislators. Tune in next week for another installment of the Hope Activism Institute.